Hi, everyone, and thank you so much for tuning into the program today. And I want to jump right into the program. I have a fantastic guest who I invited back on the show because he did an incredible teaching lately on should women be in ministry? There is a whole lot of opinion around this topic. And boy, I don't think I've heard anyone lay it out quite this good. So we're going to jump right into this today. My guest is Pastor Dean Odell from Fire and Grace Church out there in Opelika, Alabama. We're going to jump into this topic on should women be in ministry? Should they preach? Should they even talk in church? Because they're not even supposed to talk, are they? Dean, welcome to the program. Let's jump into this topic. How did that teaching originate for you? Uh, just over the you know over the years, I have had so many emails and comments and questions about women in ministry and should women be able to preach and teach or speak even speak in church. Of course, I've addressed those individually over the years, and I've mentioned it sometimes in sermons, you know, in the last thirty plus years. But I've never really just did a teaching that just focused on that subject. So I felt really led by the Lord to do that in our leadership class. So I did the, uh, our, actually our leadership class eight was women in ministry, the question mark. And then uh, some of our ministry school classes we put on YouTube for the general public. And that one's been, it's been very popular and it's uh, definitely answered, I think, a lot of the questions because, of course, we do have in the Bible, you have what appears to be a contradiction. And I don't believe God contradicted himself in the word, in the Bible. I believe every word is inspired. I believe the Bible is the holy inspired words of Almighty God and that there's no contradiction. Contradiction, and if there is an apparent contradiction or two different verses or, or passages that seem to be in conflict, it's usually because either we don't understand the context or we don't understand something uh, about the original language, whether it's Hebrew or Greek or Aramaic. So we have to dig back into the original languages. We have to dig back into the history, the culture, what was going on, so we understand the proper context. And of course, you know, it's never been a problem for me about women in the ministry, because very early on, I read Acts chapter 2, where God said in the last days, he was going to pour out his spirit on all flesh. And he said, your sons and your daughters will prophesy. And then he goes on to say, I will pour out my spirit on your handmaidens and they will prophesy. And so I knew from that alone that God was going to use women in the ministry. Of course, all we could talk about in a minute, you know, the difference between preaching and prophesying. I know there's denominations out there that don't believe in the gifts of the Holy Spirit, and they actually think preaching is prophesying, but they're not the same thing. Prophesying is actually even higher order than just preaching. It's a divine, speaking by divine supernatural Holy Ghost inspiration. And so when I read that early on as a young believer back in 1987, I knew that God was going to use women, and I never had a problem with that. And then, of course, so then you come across the verses in Timothy, of course, and in 1 Corinthians, where it appears that Paul is saying women are supposed to keep silent in the church. And then you go, okay, what am I missing here? Because 1 Corinthians 14 says that the gift of prophecy is for the edifying of the church. So why is God, was, I, I said this in our class, I said, why is God giving the gift of prophecy on these daughters and on these handmaidens to be for them out in the wilderness alone as hermits in a cave somewhere? Or is, was it to benefit the church and the church being made up of both men and women? So whenever we have this kind of apparent, like I said, apparent contradiction, we have to dig into it a little further. So that's what I did, started digging into the subject of hermeneutics and, and helping our 
students and those who would uh, listen and watch the, the class, helping them understand the proper way to interpret Scripture, and then going back and looking at the Hebrew and Greek in context and looking at both sides of the issue. And then, of course, some women that Paul mentioned in Romans. So, And two, going back in history, what was, and I'll tell this because I know I'm, we're going to get into the nuts and bolts of this in a second, but uh, two, very early on in my walk with the Lord, first of all, the person, one of the, one of the people that God used mightily in my life to teach me about spiritual warfare, about demonology, about deliverance, and who even counseled me and helped me through my deliverance for me to get set free was a woman. So uh, that's always been special to me. And I've never, again, I thank God for her. God used her in a mighty way in my life. I probably wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for her. And then, you know, after that, uh, and I started doing street ministry, and I was a youth pastor, and then I was the singles minister at a big Assembly of God church back then in those days. And then one of my very best friends, in fact, he was my associate pastor for seven years in the church that I pastored in Montgomery, Alabama. His mother and father were two of the godliest Christians that I knew growing up. He just recently passed away. They were just wonderful people, Holy Spirit-filled, people of prayer, just faithful in church. They had a prison ministry. They did deliverance in their home. They were just a special family. And what was neat about them was, and, and, and they were in order, you know, there was no, the wife wasn't usurping authority over her husband. Um, you know, he was clearly the spiritual leader of the house, but they, they're in their ministry. She was the one called to teach and preach. And he would tell you, I'm not called to preach and teach. She is. But he loved to lead praise and worship. He had a 12-string guitar, and he loved to lead praise and worship, and, and that was his gift. That was his calling, music. And so the, in their prison ministry, when they would go down to uh, like Ventress Prison here in Alabama, it's a maximum security prison. We'd go down there once a month, and we'd go with them. And uh, he would get up and lead praise and worship, and it would be wonderful. That chapel would be packed with men, packed with men. She would get up and preach and teach, and you would see men in tears, weeping, repenting, getting saved, getting healed. You know, they would pray for the sick. There was nothing out of order there. There was nothing wrong with what was happening there. And so what I'm saying is very early in my life and ministry of walking with the Lord. I saw in scripture where God said he would use women and anoint women and, and prophesy and preach and teach and minister through women. And then I saw it in action as a young minister. And of course, I studied it then too, and, and just saw what the word had to say and not getting caught up in the traditions and doctrines of men. So I'm saying it's, it's never been an issue about women in the ministry. And that's why in both the church I started in Montgomery, Alabama back in 1995, I had a female elder. I have female elder in this church here as well. My wife, I consider her also called and gifted to be a pastor, elder, and I get in trouble for that, but I don't care. Yeah, it's just, <laughs> I know what the word says about it. I thank God I'm free from the traditions and doctrines of men and the denominationalism. I walked away from all that a long time ago. Okay, so 
talking about the traditions and doctrines of men, let's just go ahead, you know, and we'll just jump right into breaking it down. Now, the, the way we end up with false doctrines and traditions of men, the way these always end up is that somehow Scripture is either taken out of its context or we don't understand something about the original language or we don't understand something about the history and culture. And so those are the laws of hermeneutics. And I know I mentioned this a minute ago, but this is paramount because the Scriptures have to harmonize. Now, I want to give a quote. This is from a theologian from decades and decades ago. And he said this. He said, every Scripture must be interpreted in the light of what other Scriptures say on the same subject. It must harmonize with all other scripture. This is where we get in trouble because we have scriptures, like I mentioned a minute ago, and you got Acts chapter two, where God said he's going to pour out his spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters are going to prophesy and your handmaidens are going to prophesy. And then we have the scriptures like in 1 Corinthians 14 that sound like he's saying that no woman can speak in church. He says, you know, 1 Corinthians 14 verse 34, where he says, let your women keep silence in the churches for it is not permitted for them to speak. And of course, there's other scriptures we're going to look at, it appears that there is a contradiction. But what we have to do is figure out not how these work against each other, not try to pick sides. Now, when you have those two things going on, but we have to figure out how these harmonize and work together, and we got to dig to make to see where we're misunderstanding something. So that's very important. I want to read this because there's a lot, a lot of people that understand this. Most Bible colleges are going to teach this. And like I said, I have my, my uh, friend who's a PhD from Fuller Theological Seminary who's a Hebrew and Greek scholar. I always run things by him sometimes just to make sure I'm not speculating or getting off track because I didn't, you know, I'm not a Hebrew or Greek scholar, though I've studied this stuff for 30-something years, but, you know, I don't speak and and read those languages fluently like he does. But uh, I threw this by him, and he said this is absolutely true about uh, what they would teach in a true conservative Bible-believing seminary on the subject of hermeneutics or the laws of biblical interpretation. And one of the laws of biblical hermeneutics is that a passage must be interpreted historically, the culture, the background of the situation. And an example of that would be like Jonah's flight. Why did Jonah run when God told him to go preach to Nineveh, the capital of Assyria? Why did he take off? when he'd already been a faithful prophet. And we find out, once you understand the history, that the Assyrians had been extremely brutal to Israel. So you you see where he he really didn't want to have anything to do with them, and and he certainly didn't want even the possibility of God having mercy on them. He wanted God to judge them and punish them, and and he didn't want to have any part in it. So just understanding the, the historical context of Assyria, Nineveh, you understand better what was going on in the book of Jonah. Well, that kind of goes along with this thing, women in ministry. It's the same thing. We need to understand that as well. Um, another law of biblical hermeneutics, and this means we have to we have to interpret the passage grammatically, which requires one to follow the rules of grammar and recognize the nuances of Hebrew and Greek. Very, very, I can't even overstress this enough. I mean, you know, just like in the, the, the whole thing, you know, I, I know you've heard like with the pre-tribulation rapture doctrine, I may be opening up another can of worms here, but it's a good example. I don't believe that the Bible teaches a pre-tribulation rapture. And some of the people who teach that, when you get into Matthew 24, 
before, and it clearly shows that the rapture is immediately after the tribulation and right at the second coming of Jesus, so a post-tribulation rapture. According to what Jesus said, they try to say, well, the elect in that verse, that he's going to gather his elect, that elect means the Jews. But when you do a study in Greek and you look up the word elect and you see how it's used in all other verses, you find out that eight out of ten times the word elect in the New Testament is used to refer to the church, not the Jews. And the other two times, one, it's referring to Jesus and one's referring to angels. So none of it refers to the Jews. So there you see where you get bad hermeneutics or bad interpretation, and you end up with a pre-tribulation rapture doctrine that's false. And the same goes for this with the women in ministry. And then, of course, this should go without saying, but the law four of biblical hermeneutics that I gave my students was that it must be interpreted in context. So when you put all that together and you start looking at these verses, it starts to make sense. So you have Acts 2. 16 through 21, your your daughters, your sons and your daughters will prophesy, and all my handmaidens I will pour on those days of my spirit, and they shall prophesy, and I will show wonders, he said, in the heaven above, signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke, the sun shall be turned into darkness, and the moon into blood before the great and notable day of the Lord come. So here the context of this, he says it shall come to pass in the last days, and then he takes it all the way to the end. So this is something about the handmaidens and daughters prophesying is something that would go all the way to the end. Not to mention that this was the sermon that Peter preached on the day of Pentecost. And if everybody remembers on the day of Pentecost, Jesus had told them, go to Jerusalem, wait for the promise of the Father. You will be baptized with the Holy Spirit, not many days hence. So 120 went and obeyed Jesus, went to Jerusalem and waited, and 120 people were all filled with the Holy Spirit, baptized in the Holy Spirit, and spoke in other tongues, supernatural tongues, on the day of Pentecost. That's when the church was born, and that was men and women. So on the first day of the church, women were speaking in the church. So obviously God didn't have a problem with it then. And then Peter stands up and says, quotes a verse from Joel, your sons and your daughters were prophesying, which is exactly what was happening on that day. So again, would God contradict himself and later tell Paul, no, women aren't supposed to, women are supposed to keep silent and say nothing. No, God is not contradictory like that. Now we go to Acts 21. And we have Philip the Evangelist, who had been one of the original seven deacons, and then he became an evangelist. God promoted him and put him in the fivefold ministry. And if you read Acts 21, 7 through 11, says that Paul's company, they departed. So Luke was with him and Silas and maybe some others. They went to the house of Philip the Evangelist, which was one of the seven, it says in verse 8. And Acts 21, verse 9, and the same man had four daughters virgins which did prophesy. So here again, we see women. This this is many years later in the life of the early church, and women were prophesying. Now, let me point this out because this is so very important. I said it a minute ago, but I'm going to say it again. The gift of prophecy. We're going to go to 1 Corinthians 14, 1 through 6. The gift of prophecy is given to believers for the edification, exhortation, and comfort of the church. Paul made this clear. So what I'm saying is why would God say your sons and your daughters, your daughters are going to prophesy, and your handmaidens are going to prophesy, and Philip had four daughters that prophesied, if it wasn't for the church? And that means to edify, exhort, and comfort the church, which would include what? Men and women. Uh, let's just read this. This is 1 Corinthians 14, 1 through 6. He says, follow after charity 
and desire spiritual gifts, but rather that you may prophesy. For he that speaketh in an untoned tongue speaketh not unto men, but unto God, for no man understandeth him, howbeit in the Spirit he speaketh mysteries. But he that prophesieth speaketh unto men to edification and exhortation and comfort. He that speaketh in an unknown tongue edifieth himself, but he that prophesieth edifieth the church. And then Paul says this, I would or I wish, I desire that you all spake with tongues, but rather that ye prophesy. For greater is he that prophesieth than he that speaketh with tongues, except he may interpret that the church may receive edifying. Now, brethren, if I come to you speaking with tongues, what shall I profit you? Except I speak to you either by revelation or by knowledge or by prophesying or by doctrine. So he makes a difference. There's revelation, there's knowledge, which would be teaching or by prophesying, speaking by divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit or by doctrine, systematically teaching through the whole Bible, something. But he said the gift of prophecy was to edify the church. Now, for those out there from, like, say, a Baptist background or a Presbyterian background or a Methodist background, and you don't understand and you think preaching the gospel is the same as prophesying, I'm going to give you the definitions. The word preach is keruso. That's the Greek word. Like in Mark 16, he said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. The word keruso means to herald as a public crier especially to herald divine truth, the gospel, a preacher, to proclaim, to publish. So that's the word preach, Caruso. The word prophesy is prophetuo, prophetuo. And prophetuo means to foretell events, to speak by divine inspiration, to speak under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, to exercise the prophetic office. That's pretty strong right there. So he says your daughters are going to foretell events, speak under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, even exercise the prophetic office. So you have the two different things. And he said that this gift of prophecy, whether it's coming through a man or a woman, is for the edification of the church. And a church is where two or three are gathered together in his name. doesn't matter where you meet, if it's in a house, a building, outside and under the trees, in a tent, that's where the church gets together. So right there you have clearly where the Bible's teaching that women are going to be part of this end-time edification, building up, comforting, and yes, even bringing correction to the church. Now, as we go on down in 1 Corinthians, it gets even it gets even better because he says here, how is it then, brethren, this is 1 Corinthians 14, 26, how is it then, brethren, when ye come together, every one of you, every one of you, just let that sink in, hath a psalm, that's a song, hath a doctrine, there's teaching, hath a tongue, hath a revelation, a revelation, that is all also within the gift of prophecy, hath an interpretation, let all things be done unto edify. So he's saying when you come together, what? Talking about church. When you come together, every one of you can have something. I look at it this way. Some of these churches that preach against women speaking or teaching or prophesying or ministering in church, they don't seem to have a problem with women getting up and singing in church. Uh, it's like, what are these, a bunch of hypocrites? A lot of these denominations used to say women can't be pastors and they can't be teachers or preachers or prophesy in church, but then would send these women to the mission field to start churches where they would basically be the pastors and the teachers and so on and so forth. It's quite hypocritical what's been done over the years and quite prejudiced to say, well, a woman's okay. She's on the mission field to do the work of the ministry, but not here in precious America or Canada or the UK or whatever, the Western church. Oh, we can't have that. And then he goes on and let's go. We're still in 1 Corinthians 14. That was verse 26. And then he says in verse 31, for you may all prophesy one by one that all may learn and all may be comforted. 
So you may all prophesy. I don't know about you, Sheila, but wouldn't all mean men and women, everybody? And then he says that you all may learn, right? So does that mean only men can learn in church or only women can learn in church? No, or all may be comforted. Oh, so there's no men or women to be comforted. See, when he said all may prophesy, all may learn, that all may be comforted. There you have it. So now Paul saying this, would he contradict himself in just a few verses when we get down to verse 34, where he says, let your women keep silence in the churches for it is not permitted them to speak, but they are commanded to be under obedience as also saith the law. And if they will learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home for it is a shame for women to speak in the church. Now, this is one of the main verses used to silence women and say they're not allowed whatsoever to speak in church or in the, in the ministry. All right. Well, here's the problem. The first problem with this passage is this. Not all women have husbands. Some women are single. Some women, they made the choice to be dedicated to the Lord and to remain celibate and single their whole lives. Some are widows and don't have husbands. So how could these women, how could this, how could you say this applies to all women when it's only speaking to those who have husbands, telling them to ask their husbands at home? All right. That's the first thing. The second thing that you've got to look up here is, and this is where we go into true biblical hermeneutics, the laws of biblical interpretation, and we go and we find out that, that there's only one word in the Greek language that can be translated woman or women and wife, all right? The word is gune. That's, that's a weird word, but that's how you pronounce it. Gune in Greek, and it says gune, a woman, especially a wife, wife, woman, uh, a woman of any age, whether a virgin or married or a widow, a wife or a betrothed woman. So the word used, for instance, the word used in Ephesians 5.22, where he says, wives, obey your husbands or be or submit to your husbands is the same word, gune. So what I'm talking about, how do you know when it should be interpreted as wife or woman? If it's the same word, well, guess what? How do we know how to interpret? Like if I say I love ice cream or I love my dog and I love my wife. Well, in English, we understand the difference between those two words and the intensity of those two words. We understand by the context in which we use them. The same thing for this. We have to look at the context. And that's where, again, the King James translators were not technically wrong in translating Gune as woman in this passage, say in 1 Corinthians 14, 34. They weren't technically wrong, but it wasn't the best choice because the context showed he was talking about husbands and wives. What's interesting is even in the Greek, you have the same, you only have one Greek word for man and for husband. We, again, we have to look at the context. So when we look at the context, we look at the context of the whole chapter, and we look at the context of Acts chapter 2. So we have Acts chapter 2, your sons and your daughters will prophesy, your handmaidens will prophesy. You see Paul saying, let all of you all may prophesy one by one. When you come together, let every one of you have something to contribute in church. Uh, so he wouldn't say, all of you can do this, men and women, everyone. And then say, no, but I mean, women can't. So once we look at this, really the way this should be translated is let your wives keep silence in the church. Then we go back into the history and the culture and we find out something. We find out back then that men used to get the educations. Women weren't as able to get access to education. 
They were the ones that stay at home and to keep the children. And so men had more education in that culture. Plus, when they came together in a meeting place, men would sit on one side, women on the other. Even going back to the, the days of Abraham, they would have one side of the tent would be for women and one side would be for men. And so what was happening in the church, the women who were married in the church uh, were speaking up and asking their husbands questions because they were like, what, you know, they were hearing Paul preach or something, you know, and they were like, what is he? talking about? What does that word mean? Da, 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 da. And basically they were disrupting the church service. And all Paul's dealing with here is this issue between husbands and wives in church. Stop interrupting the service. You guys have your conversations at home. All right. And it's as simple as that. And once we understand that, we have no contradiction in the New Testament about men and women and, and about women ministering in church. That right there is is huge. All right. And we know that's the context of this passage because he talks about verse 35. If they will learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home for it's a shame to women to speak in the church, basically to speak out and interrupt. And that's all that's going on here. Now let's go to the other passage. Of course, the other one is 1 Timothy chapter 2, 11 and 12. It says here, let the women Learn in silence with all subjection, but I suffer not a woman to teach nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. For Adam was first formed and then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. Notwithstanding, she shall be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith and charity and holiness with sobriety. Now, again, we have a similar sounding passage but we have to ask a question. First of all, what is the context? He starts talking about Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve were the first husband and wife. So if we put this into, again, its context here and not let it contradict what it says in Acts chapter 2 and what we saw with Philip's daughters who, who were, had the gift of prophecy, what we find out, he says, that again, this word woman, let the woman, gune, learn in silence with all subjection. That should be translated wife. Let the wife learn in silence. See, the reason we know that that would be a correct interpretation is because if you go to 1 Peter chapter 3, Peter's given instructions to wives who have husbands that don't obey the Lord. And he says, you know what? You're not going to win that husband by your mouth running at him all the time and nagging him to death. He says, but when he sees your silent obedience and humility and how you conduct yourself that way, that's what's going to win his heart. And that's what first, so so we, again, taking scripture, comparing scripture with scripture, he's saying, let the wife learn in silence with her, uh, with all subjection. And he says, I suffer not a woman to teach nor to usurp authority over the man. And this word man, remember, there's only one word in Greek for man and for husband. So if you put husband in here, guess what? You get the proper context because all men, for instance, uh, some man wants to get, you know, in trouble with me. Let him start trying to order my wife. That's not going to happen. Don't get the idea is because you're a man, you're the head of all women. No, if you're if you're married, you're the head of your wife, and that's it. You're the head over her. But what he's saying here when he says, but I suffer not a woman to teach, no usurp authority over the man, the husband, but to be in silence. This is right here, and if you look these words up, it gets interesting. But he says, I've suffered not a, a wife to teach her husband. And see, this is called a matter of keeping respect and order. It's kind of like our children. I don't want to hear my children trying to teach me. I don't 
care if I'm wrong. They need to shut up. I mean, that's just the way it is. So that doesn't sound right, Pastor. They know they need to respect me, period. And that's all this is teaching here is that a wife should respect her husband. And, and when it says, nor usurp authority over the man, well, that word usurp authority means to force oneself to be destructive. And man, I've seen women, you know, in public with their husbands that'll degrade them or, may, or embarrass them or make them look stupid or even tell them, you know, you're stupid or you need to shut up. Or when a woman's doing that, a married woman's doing that to her husband, she is completely out of order. She is in rebellion and disrespect. I'm not saying a man is has free because he, you know, a husband has authority over his wife and a spiritual authority that he has the right to put her down or to, you know, lord it over or be a tyrant. No, that's a that's you know that's another teaching. But that's all Paul is addressing here. This has nothing to do with like a woman being in a church service as a say she has the the calling to be a prophetess or a deacon or a pastor or a teacher as we're going to see in Romans here in a second. She is fine. It's fine for her to teach men. It's fine for her to be instructed. Like I said, I've learned, I've sat in services with women ministering, teaching and preaching and learned a lot from them and never felt like I was being disrespected or they were usurping authority. One of the most powerful meetings I've ever been in was a woman ministering for a week that me and another pastor invited in and, and had a week full of services and the glory of God and the anointing was on her so strong. So no, no, don't get me, don't think for a second. I think just because a husband is called the, the spiritual leader and authority of his wife that he can do any of that either to her to disrespect or put her down. Now, you see that going on, especially you see that going on in public. Something's really bad wrong in there, you know, with both of them or with him anyway, if it's just him doing it. Um, We had situations in the past where, you know, like uh, my wife, she does a women's meeting like once a month in our church. And over the years, we've had women that want to come in and use uh, the topic of prayer request to tell everyone about their husband's shortcomings <laughs> and <laughs> issues and problems. <laughs> and my wife would go, oh, no, no, no. That, we're not doing that. <laughs> yeah, we're not doing that. <laughs> You know, uh, but again, that works both ways. You know, I've had some situations in counseling where Christian men were like, you know, starting to get a little too obsessive about their authority. And I said, you know, here's the thing. You should be able, because you rarely say no and you rarely put your foot down about things, that when you do, they go, okay. You know, because, you know, and I, and I yeah. said the same thing with about kids. Now, I've seen, now I'm going to say this, I've seen women who pushed themselves into the ministry or in positions in a church or manipulated their way in, and, and they have that man-hating spirit, that feminism movement in the world, and this total man-hating, man needs to be below us. I've, I've seen that. So I'm not talking about that. Some people think, oh, you're just, you're giving in to the whole feminist movement and letting it in the church. I'm talking about about women speaking in church and women being in the ministry. And I'm like, no, 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 no. This is not about man haters. Um, you know, I, I, I remember the Lord speaking to me the day my great grandmother, right before she passed away at 89 years old, I was sitting at her feet. We we're getting ready to take her to the hospital. And I knew it was the end for her. And the Lord spoke to me so clearly sitting there at her feet. He said, you're here because of her. 
And this woman would pray for me incessantly. I mean, from the time I was born or she found out, you know, I probably she when she found out that my mother was pregnant and she prayed and prayed and prayed for me. And I, I mean, I should have been dead so many times with my party life and the fights and the drinking and driving and the drugs and mixing alcohol and drugs. There's so many times I should have been dead. And I can look back. I can look back and see specific times of intervention. And so it's just ridiculous for us to try to say that somehow women are less than men when God has used women powerfully, powerfully. I mean, I go back and you look in the Old Testament and you see a prophetess named Huldah who had a school of ministry, a college for prophets. You see Deborah was a prophetess who ended up having to lead the men the armies of Israel into battle because a man wouldn't do it. Just unbelievable times that God's raised up women. Even look at Miriam, you know, Moses' sister, and she was considered a prophet and a leader within Israel. You know, of course, in Galatians, the verse that there's neither male nor female, but we are all one in Christ Jesus. I really believe God can greatly use any woman or man within the church to do great things. We've seen a history of great women. I mean, just Elizabeth Elliot is one whose husband, you know, goes to the mission field to the Aukas and he's immediately killed by them. And she goes and takes up the mantle there, shows that tribe love, and establishes a church there and brings them to Jesus, a woman. Um, Is her fruit somehow less than a man's because she's a woman? It's just ridiculous. Romans 16, 1 through 8, Junia. And yes, truly, uh, verse 7 says, uh, Paul wrote, Salute Andronicus and Junia, or Junia, I'm not sure which way you pronounce it, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners who are of note among the apostles who were also in Christ before me. So Paul is saying, these are, these are my kinsmen. So he was related to them somehow. These are my fellow prisoners. They've been persecuted for the gospel's sake. They are among the apostles. Now, remember, there was like over 20 apostles in the New Testament. We forget that sometimes, but Barnabas was one and Silas was another. And I mean, there's a list where there's mention of other apostles. And here we see Junia as a woman mentioned as being among the apostles. And I've told people, when you when you t- talk about the fivefold ministry in Ephesians 4, you have apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers who are there for, what, what does it say? It says, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, to prepare the saints for the work of the ministry. It's pretty clear that an apostle is a minister of the gospel. And really, I believe the ministry gift of an apostle has to fulfill all the other four as well. They have to be a teacher. They have to be uh, a pastor or shepherd, an evangelist, a prophet. They have to do all of that. In any of the apostles you look at in the New Testament, they all did those things. They were considered prophets and teachers and shepherds or pastors, which is the same word. So Junia was clearly a female apostle. And I'm sure that throws some Baptist, Methodist, and other people who have these traditional teachings locked down in their mind that, that makes them probably pass out and uh, fall over, but it's it's the truth, and that's what it says in Romans. But even if you back up in Romans 16, the, he starts Romans 16 with this, and this is vitally important. He says, I commend unto you Phoebe, our sister. So it's clearly a woman. He makes it clear, you understand, Phoebe, if you look up the name Phoebe, it means a Christian woman. And then he says, our sister, which is a servant of the church, which is at Centuria. Now, we'll talk about that word in a second, the servant word, that you receive her in the Lord 
as becometh saints, and that you assist her in whatsoever business she hath need of you, for she hath been a succorer or a helper of many out of myself also. Now, let's just break this down. First of all, he says there that you receive her in the Lord. Now, why do you think he would have to tell them you receive her and you help her, both men and women out there, you in the Roman church, you help her and you receive her? Because I guess there was some pushback of a woman being in the ministry. But let's look at this. The, the word servant, she was a servant of the church and she was on church business. All right. The word in the Greek is diakonos, diakonos. That's the word. And here's what it means, the Strong's definition of this word. An attendant, a Christian teacher and pastor, technically a deacon or deaconess, deacon, minister, servant. Now, another way we look at a word, too, is not only by the definition, but how is it used in other scriptures? So if you look at the other scriptures in the New Testament where this word is used, it gets really interesting. You know, Romans 15, 8. Now, I say that Jesus Christ was a minister, diakonos. Same word, where he says, I commend you, Phoebe, our sister, which is a servant of the church, diakonos. Then 1 Corinthians 3, 5, who is Apollos but ministers by whom ye believed, diakonos. So it's used to, tra it's translated ministers. It's translated ministers several times, 2 Corinthians 3, 6, 2 Corinthians 6, 4. He goes on down, but I wanted to get to this. He says, are they, when Paul asks, are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool, I am more. That's diakonos. Ephesians 3, 7, for instance, he says, whereof I was made a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given unto me by the effectual working of his power. So the word minister here, when Paul's talking about I was made a minister, diakonos. You take it on down. Paul and Timotheus, this is Philemon 1, 1. Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ to all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi with the bishops and deacons. Diakonos. So it just goes on and on to confirm that she was a minister. The words also used for shepherd or pastor or deacon or bishop. So Phoebe was clearly in the ministry, in the leadership of the church at Centuria, and that she was on church business in Rome. And Paul had to tell them, you receive her. Don't you treat her any different because she's a woman. Don't do it. So that, to me, this right here, this is the icing on the cake, the proverbial nail in the coffin that Paul was not talking about. Women cannot be ministers, leaders, teachers, pastors, shepherds. I tell people all the time, I said, you, you know something? The word pastor or shepherd can be interchangeable. I said, you know, I look at my wife and behind the scenes, and now sometimes she does teach in church, but behind the scenes, she's doing as much shepherding and pastoring of this church and ministry than I do. Sometimes more, she does more counseling than I do. She is with me when we pray and cast demons out of people. She's with me when we're at the altar praying for the sick. She is a servant. I would say that I could say to this, I commend unto you, Nancy, our sister, which is a servant of the church, which is here in Opelika. And to say otherwise is just, to me, it's just you really are taking the scriptures out of context because this has been a doctrine and tradition of men, sometimes honestly because of bad translations, bad interpretation of scripture, bad hermeneutics, not intentional always, but still wrong. I tell people whenever you teach something that's, whenever you're wrong about something in the Bible, people get hurt. And a lot of women have been hurt, discouraged, pushed aside, kept down because of this misunderstanding. And, and, you know, I pointed out when I was teaching our students about this, that if you go 
to Matthew 28, for instance. You go to Matthew 28, verses 1 through 8 there, where Jesus rose from the dead. And it says, you know, in the end of the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, came Mary Magdalene and the other Mary to see the sepulcher. And it says the angels, you know, they rolled back the stone. They were there. And it, it was just powerful. And the angel of the Lord descended from heaven, and his countenance was like lightning. And verse 5 says, and the angel answered, said to the women, fear ye not. He said, I know that you seek Jesus, which was crucified. He is not here. He is risen, as he said. Come see the place where the Lord lay. Now listen to this. And go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he goeth before you into Galilee. There shall you see him. Lo, I have told you. Now it says they quickly departed from the sepulcher with fear and great joy and did run to bring his disciples' word. Now I believe this. Some people may not believe this, but I believe that every single thing that happened around the life, the ministry, the death, the resurrection of Jesus was all completely ordained and orchestrated by God himself. That there's not an incident that he didn't know about ahead of time. He could have changed. It, it could have not been women at the sepulcher. It could have been men. But the men were afraid for their lives, afraid of the Romans and in hiding. And the women went to the tomb. They didn't care. And they were the first ones given a command to go preach the resurrection to the apostles. It wasn't the apostles preaching it to these poor, helpless women who were to keep silent. It was these women, go tell them. I think if we have 11 apostles in a room and a bunch of women come in and they start talking about Jesus, that would constitute church. Flat out, God had women be the first to preach his resurrection. So to me, again, this is a ridiculous argument based on prejudice based yeah. on bad teaching, misinterpretation, just error. Well, and again, who is the first person that Jesus appeared to? It wasn't a guy. It was Mary, <laughs> a woman. Right. Not John, <laughs> not Peter, not Andrew, not Philip, none of them. Mary. It's just powerful. Yeah. And, and if you think about it, it was really him reversing. It really is Jesus trying to reverse a cultural bias. And truly, you know, if you look, if you're honest, you think about the, the Bible and you think about particularly even New Testament Christianity, it was really, in so many ways, in so many areas, it was completely, again, trying to reverse evil things within the culture. It's just like the abortion issue. I mean, life correcting this about, you know, polygamy, you know, the New Testament said, no, 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 that's, that's not going to be happening. But just straightening things out the way they're supposed to be. Well, again, it's such a contentious topic. And was there anything that really surprised you? Because clearly you would have got a lot of, I'm assuming this, blowback from men. So did you get a lot of backlash? And if you did, what surprised you in that backlash? Well, yeah, but you know what's funny? What's funny is when I get blowback and resistance and rejection of this truth from women. I get blasted by these women saying, what are you talking about? You're in error. You're part of the apostasy. You're all this because you're saying women can preach and teach and women are supposed to be silent and not usurp authority over the man. I said, now look, I said, first of all, what I always, I love it when a woman does this because I, first thing I tell them, I said, okay, so you believe a woman's not supposed to teach a man. What are you doing trying to teach me about this? <laughs> you should be quiet. But I begin to get a lot. Listen, I begin to get a lot. Every time I let Nancy preach or teach or, you know, have another lady speak, I always get the 
the comments and the emails and the messages. And most of the time, I just ignored them. But I noticed that men don't mind. They didn't mind lining up to go see Catherine Kuhlman, though, did they? Right. And that's the hypocrisy and all this. For instance, you say, if you're going to be strict on this and you say women are not supposed to speak in church, well, then I better not see a woman teaching a Sunday school class, teaching the children. Not speaking is not speaking. I don't want to see a woman getting up in the choir or singing. You know, that's why at our conference, it's like, you know, last year, I didn't plan it that way. We just didn't have any women speakers. But this year, it was like the Lord began to speak to me about inviting you, about my wife doing a segment. And actually, we're going to have, I just found out today, it's going to be awesome. But we're going to have, I think she's going to be 79-year-old lady from Canada who got healed, miraculously healed. I mean, she was basically crippled. The Lord completely healed her. She, she started sharing her testimony about this, and they pretty much gave her the, uh, showed her the door of, at her Baptist church. But she is doing deliverance now. 79 years old now, just found out she's going to be able to come from Canada uh, to be with us. So we're going to have several women preaching, teaching, ministering. It's going to be a powerful time. And I know, see, that's what I know. I know women are just as anointed as men. We have different, you know, we're different, of course, physically. We're different sometimes emotionally. Uh, We have different ways that we deal with things. But we're still human beings. We still have a spirit, a soul, and a body, and God can move and work through male or female equally. And to tell you the truth, I don't care if God is moving through a woman or a man. I just want to be in a place where God's moving. Amen. Yes, sir. I agree with that. Well, Dean, in the last part of the show, before we talk a little bit about Skyfall 2019, let's pray for the people in some deliverance and spiritual warfare here. Let's go ahead. I'll get you to start us off, sir. Amen. Well, Father, right now in Jesus' name, Lord, we pray for those out there, Lord. And we understand, God, some people just have been taught wrong. We were taught wrong about many things over the years. And so, Lord, a stronghold gets in there, a stronghold, the spirit of error. And so, Lord, right now in the name of Jesus, we just bind the spirits of error. We bind the seducing spirits, the spirits of deception and error, these spirits of of man-hating and woman-hating and prejudice. We bind these spirits in Jesus' name. We break their power off of people's minds, wills, and emotions out of their spirits. We break and tear down these strongholds, and we command these spirits of error and deception and seducing spirits and false doctrine to go from people right now. Loose them, leave them in Jesus' name. Jesus' name. Lord, I ask you, Lord, to deal with this root issue of this man-hating, woman-hating, prejudiced, pride spirit, men having pride that they're somehow superior in every way. Lord, right now, in the name of Jesus, we bind those demons and rebuke those spirits of haughtiness and pride in Jesus' name. And Lord, I pray that they would have ears to hear and hearts to discern and understand what we just went through. We just went through the word systematically. We went through the Hebrew and Greek words. We went through the examples in the Bible and did away with all apparent contradictions. And we see that God has anointed women to preach, teach, minister, prophesy, and be part of the church and contributing part of the church. So, Lord, remove this false doctrine of men, this this false teaching, and these lying spirits, these deceiving spirits. God, we rebuke them and command them to go from people and that people would be loosed. And Lord, also, if a man or a minister or a pastor has been guilty of this error and causing women called to the ministry and called to preach and teach, to be discouraged and to step away and to not do what they're called to do. Lord, let there be repentance and humility and brokenness and change. Yes. Amen. 
Well, Father, I come in agreement with Dean as well. We take authority over all those spirits that have to do with misogyny and misandry, men and women hating spirits, those spirits of offense. We come against the spirit of offense and the Adam and Eve anger, all the contention and the strife. We break the power of that thing and we command that to go in Jesus Christ's name. We command it to get out of God's people right now. All the opposition, taking things the wrong way, that spirit of offense, go. The Antichrist spirit that twists God's word, We bind you, break your power, and we command you to get out of God's people now. We give you leave right now in the name of Jesus. We bind the lying spirit, believing a lie, the troublemaker, the strife spirits, the the bearing false witness. We come against the accuser spirit, that finger pointing. All spirits of perversion that pervert God's word, we break your power now and command you to manifest and come out of the people now. We take authority over the Jezebel and the Ahab spirits. That Jezebel spirit is rooted in witchcraft, sorcery, and control. We bind you, break your power, and we command you to manifest and come out of the people. Let's go. Move. And that devilish feminist spirit that causes women to emasculate men, we break that thing in Jesus Christ's name. Or the Ahab spirit where they allow women to run the show. Usurp the authority over men right now. In Jesus' name, we break the power of that thing. God has a structure competition between men and women. We come against every devil that usurps God's authority in the home, that godly structure and the priesthood that God set up in the home. Those spirits of rebellion, we command you to get out of the people now. Come on, manifest and come out of the people now. All spirits that want to dominate, control, manipulate, that is straight up charismatic witchcraft. And we break the witchcraft off people. We break the mind-binding spirit that causes people to believe that lie. And where we've failed you and not believed your word properly, Father, we repent for that. We break off God's people, all those spirits of traditions of men that make your word of none effect, Lord. And right now, Father, give us ears that hear and the eyes that see, Lord, in Jesus' mighty name. And we just thank you today, Father, for this. And we seal this deliverance with the blood of Jesus Christ. And we give you honor, glory, and praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, Dean, I got to tell you something quick about Alabama. I am very impressed because, of course, there's a, a... near total ban on abortion signed into law in Alabama. So yay, Alabama. Oh, it keeps getting better. Just uh, a complete abortion ban. Something I thought I would never see any state do. And then, of course, but Alabama has been trending more and more conservative. And then even the Alabama public broadcasting the other day refused to play the Arthur Gay Marriage episode from the national you know, office. So Alabama's really been taking a stand against some things. And, uh, you know, a long time I lived in Texas and Arkansas and Washington, D.C., but the Lord brought me back home. But I've just watched the politics and I actually know some of the politicians that have been in top offices in our state. And there's some Christians, some true Christians, some true godly men and women, and it's made a difference. And, um, you know, a number of years ago, our state did a referendum on gay marriage and 86% voted against it. Um, So, uh, you know, we're the only, I think in the last seven or eight years, we've had uh, the Republican conservative, you know, side of the Republican parties controlled the House, the Senate, and the governor's office. So that's been going on now since what, 2011 at least. So I definitely think we're in the running for at least to to be in the top three and maybe now number one in most conservative states in the U.S. So, (laughs) Wow, I'm impressed. Alabama, I am very, very 
and press kind of makes you want to move there. Hey, listen, Dean, in the last part of the show, very quickly, what time is your service and tell folks how they can get out to your church there in Opelika? Okay, we start here. Uh, we're at 200 Second Avenue in Opelika, Alabama. We're on the corner of Second Avenue and Second Street, where our services start at 10:30 a.m. Central Standard Time. But we do broadcast live starting at 11 a.m. Central Time on Facebook, YouTube, our website. So we do stream live. 10:30 we start worship, praise and worship, and then we have prayer here. Uh, every Wednesday night around 7.30. And, and of course, we've been having classes, but school's about to be out, about to have final exams next week. Yeah, you've got a great school there and a great church. So folks, get out to that. And another thing in the last part of the show, I'm going to leave you with the Skyfall 2019 trailer. I'm going to be out there October 4th, 5th, and 6th speaking at Skyfall 2019. Come out and see us there. It's going to be an amazing time. Dean, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the program. Look forward to October, and I appreciate your time and coming on the show, sir. Thank you. Yes, thank you, Sheila, for having me. I enjoyed it very much. Folks, that was Pastor Dean Odell from Fire and Grace Church. His information is there on your screen, and I'm going to leave you with the trailer for Skyfall 2019. We'll see you real soon. God bless.